The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter 1. How many of you have ever played hide and seek? When my daughter Avery was about two years old, she liked to play hide and seek. And I know you'll be very impressed with me when I tell you this. I found her every time. <laughs> See, that's not fair, Brother Matt. I know I had some unfair advantages. It didn't hurt that she hid in the same spot every time. <laughs> behind the same door. Didn't hurt that she giggled half the time. And it didn't hurt that I'm an adult and she was two. She may have thought she could run and hide, but Daddy knew exactly where she was. Now, there's obviously nothing wrong with playing the game hide-and-seek, but it's not a game you want to play with God. If an earthly parent has those sorts of advantages and knows exactly where the child is hiding, then how much more the sovereign Lord of the universe? You may think you can run. You may think you can hide from God, but ultimately, God is inescapable. Sadly, though, a lot of people try. A lot of people try to shield themselves from God. They try to hide from God, or they even try to run from something they know God wants them to do. And if you do that, or maybe you have done that in the past, you know that it will cost you a lot of peace. You will forfeit a lot of joy. God had called the prophet Jonah to preach a message of divine judgment against the Ninevites because of her wickedness, the city of Nineveh. We saw this last week. And we would expect a man of God to obey. But Jonah rebelled. He bought a ticket on a ship that was sailing as far in the other direction that he could go. He wanted to keep God's goodness a secret. He didn't want the enemies of Israel to be presented with any hope, any opportunity to repent, any chance of experiencing any of God's grace. And so Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. But as we resume the story today, starting in verse 4, we find that fleeing from God's presence is easier said than done. Maybe the phrase that we use, you can run but you can't hide, would sort of fit with Jonah. Let's pick up with verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 16 this morning. Jonah 1, verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. 
Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? He said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. I don't know how long the ship was at sea before this storm hit, but the author of Jonah wasted no time in telling us about it. And I love that. If we weren't sort of already chuckling and, and, and shaking our heads at Jonah's attempt to flee from God's presence, we are now. It doesn't seem like it took long for God to catch up with Jonah. Jonah's attempt to flee from the Lord's presence is hopeless. And the fact that this storm chases him down, it emphasizes a couple of points that I want to make. First... I mentioned one of the major points that we see in Jonah is God's sovereignty over nature. Notice in verse 4 that God sent out a great wind. And I, I love the image we're given here because this is not the normal Hebrew word for sending something. This word actually means to throw something, to cast it, to hurl it. When King Saul threw his javelin at David... This was the word used. In fact, it's used several other times in this chapter. In verse 5, this same word was used to describe the sailors throwing the cargo overboard. Down in verse 12 and in verse 15, this same word described Jonah being thrown overboard. So I want you to think about this for a second. God is so powerful that he can throw wind. I could just stop right there. But God is so powerful that he can throw wind like you could throw a spear or a box of supplies. To us, wind is a very mysterious thing. We don't see it. We notice its effects. We, we see the leaves moving around and we hear, it, we hear that. We can't control it. We try to harness its power and, and we can use that sometimes. But we even have a phrase, roping the wind, to describe doing something that's impossible. 
And yet with God, he can toss wind around like it's a baseball. God has total control over nature. And the second point that that we need to be reminded of is that God is in control everywhere. Last week I made the point when talking about God sending Jonah to Nineveh because their wickedness had come up before him that much of the ancient world was polytheistic people who believed in many gods and they believed that these gods and goddesses had sort of territorial limits to their powers. Jonah is now on the Mediterranean Sea somewhere. Who knows exactly how far away he is from the land of Israel where Yahweh is typically worshipped? That doesn't matter. There is no limit to the power of God. No limit to his control, no limit to his sphere of influence. He's just as powerful on the sea as he is on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So how impractical is it then for Jonah to even think he can flee from God's presence? It's impossible. I want you to turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is one of the best passages in the Bible concerning God's omnipresence, His omniscience. And when we read what David wrote about that, it... it, it makes us almost laugh at Jonah's actions even more. Psalm, Psalm 139, I want to I read the first 18 verses together. And I'm going to read uh, from the ESV as I read these verses. But David wrote in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Notice verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be a night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. How different is David from Jonah? On the one hand, you have Jonah 
who is hopelessly trying to flee to escape God's presence. And yet, on the other hand, you have David who seems to be encouraged by the fact that that's impossible. So when Jonah ran, he's running from a God who's everywhere. From a God who knows everything. And so as he ran, God sent this wind, which created a violent storm. A storm that the Bible described in verse 4 as a mighty tempest. Jonah called it that in verse 12. We see in verse 4 that this ship, uh, the, the storm is so violent that the ship is, is threatening to break apart. The wind is so strong and the waves are beating it so harshly that the sailors think at any moment that we're just going to be ripped to pieces. In fact, the description, if you look in verse 11 and verse 13 of Jonah, of Jonah chapter 1, this phrase that the sea wrought and was tempestuous, you see the phrase twice, it's, it's very, very picturesque, and the, the word wrought is the normal word for walking. Literally, this says that the sea was walking and storming. Basically, the sea was moving is what the author is trying to tell us. The waters were traveling. And these sailors were professionals, probably Phoenicians. They had sailed the Mediterranean Sea countless times. They've encountered countless storms, but not like this. They were scared to death. And as they braced themselves best they could against the wind, and no doubt the... the the salt water just blistering their faces as they try to toss the cargo overboard in hopes of saving their lives, in hopes of saving their ship. Nothing helped. And they all interpreted this storm of storms to be some sort of divine judgment. And so they called out to all their false gods for some sort of help, for some sort of intervention. Isn't that what people do when they feel like they're in trouble? When, when you sort of, when your back's against the wall or you, you finally reach the low point, you, you reach out to anything you can. People will turn to all sorts of things in life to look for help, to look for answers. Jesus Christ is the only person worth turning, worth turning to. He's the only person who can truly rescue, rescue you from true danger. So they turn to their false gods. And while the wind is screaming and the waves are beating on the boat and these men are screaming out to their false gods, there's one passenger who's down in the hole asleep. And this wasn't just some sort of catnap that Jonah was taking. The words in the Hebrew indicate that this was a heavy, deep sleep. Now, I'm a pretty deep sleeper, but I don't know that I would have been able to sleep through a storm like that. I really don't. Somehow Jonah is in a deep sleep. And as it, it comes as no surprise to us that the false gods don't answer these sailors. Nothing changes. So the captain goes down and he wakes up Jonah. No other gods listening. Maybe yours will. We need everyone's help. Again, it was clear to everyone on the ship that this is something divine. 
the sailors just didn't know whose fault it was or, or why. And we know that's true as well. We sort of talked about this a little bit in Brother Doug's Sunday School class, for those of you who were there, maybe you heard online. We do need to be careful in our lives not to attribute every natural disaster or every violent storm to some sort of specific act of judgment on God's behalf. It doesn't mean he's not sovereign. But if we think that we always know the why, then we become like Job's friends, and they were actually wrong with the why they gave Job. When Job suffered, his friends came to him, and they felt like the only reason he would suffer like that was that God was punishing him for wickedness. And that wasn't true. That wasn't what was happening in Job's life. Jesus was asked about this sort of thing one time, and in, in Luke chapter 13, he said this, Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God is sovereign over nature. And he can absolutely use disasters and storms as divine judgments. But sometimes towers fall. And it doesn't mean that those people were worse than anyone else. We don't always know that. Jesus reminds us that we're all wicked and unless you repent, you'll all die. So we need to understand God's sovereignty over nature while also understanding that we don't always know the motives of an infinite God since we are finite people. In Jonah's story, though, we're privy to some behind-the-scenes information. We know what Jonah's doing, and we were told that God sent this wind, and we know what is going on throughout the rest of the story. The sailors were not wrong to interpret this storm as a divine act. And Jonah admits it later as well. Jonah knew it. I, I've used this before, so if it sounds familiar, it's, it's because I say it quite a bit. If God was trying to get Jonah's attention here, and, and we, we see he was, and, and people ask, well, how do I know in my life? How do I know if, if, if God is disciplining me? How do I know if he's trying to get my attention and I'm sure I stole this from someone else, but no one ever had to tell me when my dad was whipping me. I knew it. So if you have to question and wonder what's going on, maybe God's not. Maybe, maybe a tower's falling. God's children should recognize the disciplined hand of God and not fret or doubt or... or or worry because of it, we should be thankful because it means we're sons and daughters and not illegitimate children. Hebrews talked about that. These men and Jonah himself, they interpreted this as a divine storm. They knew something needed to happen. They just didn't know whose fault it was or what they could do to, to stop this. And so they decided to cast lots to figure out who the culprit was. Casting lots is a very mysterious thing to us, but it was a common thing in the ancient world. We don't know everything about it, but scholars um, believe that essentially what happened when they cast lots was that they took some small marked stones, put them in a container, shook them up, and cast them out in some certain way to where there was a deciding stone. It may sound a little bit like playing Yahtzee, where you put some dice in a cup and you shake it around and you hope you get, you know, 
five of the same kind, and, and I, never, I never win Yahtzee. I'm good at hide and seek, but Yahtzee's not my forte. The difference between Yahtzee and casting lots is that the ancient people did not believe that to be a game of chance. They did not think that this was just some random outcome, but that it truly reflected some sort of divine will that it gave them insight. And again, that's mysterious to us. But even the ancient Israelites used lots quite a bit in their history. Casting lots confirmed the sin of Achan. If you remember in, in the, when Joshua and the Israelites were taking over the promised land, a man had sinned and they didn't know who it was. Casting lots determined it was Achan. Casting lots was one way they helped divide up the promised land to the tribes. It, it revealed the selection of Saul as the first king of Israel. And here on this storm-tossed ship, the lots revealed that the problem is Jonah. And when the sailors learned this information, uh, verse 8 has always made me laugh. They had a lot of questions for Jonah. The, the reason it makes me laugh is just the rapid-fire succession of these questions. They don't even let Jonah answer until they get them all out. Verse 8, they say unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? What people art thou from? Look, tell us everything. We've we got to get to the bottom of this right now. We're about to die. And when Jonah answered their questions, it didn't help. In fact, in verse 10, they seemed to be more afraid after Jonah answered. So what was it about his answer that struck them so much. Look at verse 9 again. Surrounded by polytheistic pagans who believed that gods were limited or that the gods' powers were limited by their territories, look at how Jonah described his God. He said unto them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. You may have the word Lord in all capital letters in your Bible there, and that indicates that this is not just the generic word for master, but the name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. So Jonah says, I fear Jehovah. And notice how he describes God. The God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. The God that I serve is not limited in his power, in his scope, in his territory. He made it all. He's the God of heaven, and he created the sea that we're fighting with right now, and he made the land. My God is different from any other so-called God. It's also really fascinating to me in verse 9. Did you notice what Jonah says about himself I fear the Lord. If you heard Wednesday night's lesson in Proverbs, we talked about what it means to fear the Lord. And a big aspect of fearing the Lord in the Old Testament, and especially in Proverbs, has to do with obedience. And yet here is Jonah disobeying God, yet claiming to fear Him. How do we reconcile that? Well, have you ever disobeyed God and yet would still consider yourself to be a God-fearing person? I'm sure we all have. 
disobedience doesn't necessarily mean you're an atheist. Disobedience on Jonah's behalf didn't mean he had no relationship with God. But if we fear God in its fullest sense, then we will be wise enough to obey. That's not what Jonah's doing at this moment. But even in his disobedience, he still understands who the true God is. He's still fully convinced this storm is God's. And he believed that if he were tossed overboard, then God would calm the sea for the sailors. Jonah doesn't doubt God's involvement in this at all. And if we understand this storm, even in the, in the slightest, tossing someone overboard in this storm would mean absolute death. There was no grabbing a raft during this storm. There was no swimming to shore. You were going to drown. Jonah knew that, and the sailors knew that. So don't view this... Don't view this as something courageous on Jonah's behalf. He has no idea what's about to happen. And he was not signing up to be a martyr to give his life for these men. Okay, don't think, boy, how heroic of Jonah. He's willing to sacrifice his life to save the ship and to save these sailors. What love. Jonah was a coward when he offered himself to be thrown overboard. Fleeing from God's presence wasn't working out. And so Jonah would rather die than repent. Why not repent, Jonah? He would rather be tossed hopelessly into the sea than offer Nineveh any hope. That's some deep-seated hatred. Hatred that runs completely contrary to what Jesus told his followers to be like. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here's Jonah who's willing to die rather than obey God and preach to people he hated. Shame on us if there is any person in the world that we have that kind of hatred for or any hatred for. Jonah's willing to give his life so that God wouldn't forgive others. That seems completely backwards of what the New Testament tells us of how we're to be. Everyone on the ship knew that throwing a man overboard in those conditions would result in death. And so even though Jonah volunteered, it's almost like the sailors just ignored him. Because look at verse 13 again. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land. Okay. Jonah, we're not throwing you overboard in this storm. We're just going to keep trying. We're not going to cause the death of a passenger. And so they dug their oars into the sea. But it was just so, so hopeless. And so finally they felt that they had no other choice. So they cried unto Jehovah. They cried unto Jonah's God to rescue them and not hold them accountable for what they're about to do. 
don't hold Jonah's, don't hold them responsible for Jonah's death. Because they say, we realize you're doing what's pleasing you. And so in verse 15, when they threw Jonah into the sea and the waves swallowed up the prophet, we see that the sea ceased from her raging. The word ceased there is the word used in the Old Testament most often for someone standing. So the image is so fascinating to me where earlier the sea was described as moving. It was a walking sea, a traveling sea. But when they threw Jonah in, the sea just stood. Can you imagine what that did in the hearts and minds of these sailors? Didn't something similar happen to the apostles one time on the Sea of Galilee when they were with Jesus in a boat? In Matthew chapter 8, Matthew records a story. He says, when he got into the boat, that's Jesus, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? Jesus Christ demonstrated the same power over storms that God did in the Old Testament. That's because Jesus is God. And when he rebuked the winds and the seas and that storm turned into a glass sea, those men were amazed. And Mark's gospel said they were filled with great fear. Isn't that pretty much what happened to the sailors in Jonah? Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord. Notice again, Lord in all capital letters. They feared Jehovah. Exceedingly. And offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. They're no longer crying out to those inept, powerless, false gods. They are now amazed at Jehovah's power. The men who feared the storm now feared the God of the storm. They offered sacrifices to him. They made vows. This seems to be like, uh, this seems to be like it was a life-changing experience for these men. So consider this. Jonah's plan to keep God a secret isn't going so well, is it? God is so masterful that even in Jonah's disobedience, men are brought to fear him. That's how sovereign God is. Don't misunderstand. I'm not implying that disobedience is okay. We're not praising Jonah for his disobedience. We're showing that the power lies with God. God doesn't need us. 
God's work is not dependent on us. But He still wants us. He still desires a relationship with us. And He desires us to serve Him. And if He can do so much when men are disobedient, just think of what God can accomplish when His children obey. Maybe He can save a city. Maybe a pagan city like Nineveh. We're going to stop right here this morning and leave Jonah in the sea. He deserves it, right? We can, he, can, he can flounder around for a week. But I want to leave you with, with three major thoughts, one from the sailors' perspective and two from Jonah. First, from the perspective of the sailors and their story, it took a near-death experience for God to get their attention. They set sail as polytheistic pagans. And while it might be too much to say that they completely abandoned all of their upbringing and all of their culture, they sure came to a point where they know that Jehovah's different. This was life-changing for them. And so I want to ask you, what would it take for God to get your attention? What would it take before you repented and trusted Jesus? What would it take for you to truly surrender your life to God? Don't wait for a threatening, violent storm to attack your life before you give Him your life. Take advantage of the truth of God's Word today. Heed the warning today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know how many more opportunities you'll get. Trust the one who holds tomorrow and trust him today. From Jonah's perspective, two things. First, you cannot run and hide from God. God is inescapable. And sometimes we might... We might desire to be like Jonah in, in, a, in a sense that, boy, maybe there's some times I wish that we could escape God for just a second. Could you, could you turn your back just, just for a minute, God, while I do this? Or I wish I could get away from you for just a moment. But truly consider what it would mean to be completely removed from God's presence. There's only one place in the universe that is away from the presence of the Lord, and that place is called hell. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul said that those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, listen, away from the presence of the Lord. Sometimes we may be a little like Jonah and say, Man, I just for a minute, can I be away from your presence, Lord? We need to be more like David and be so thankful that in Jesus Christ, we can never be away from the presence of the Lord. Because if you're truly, completely removed from God's presence, you're suffering eternal destruction. Thankfully, 
If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you're delivered from that. You don't have to worry about it. His spirit has indwelled you. He will never leave you and forsake you. So if and when, if we ever start to think, boy, I wish I could just get away from God for a second. No, you don't. No, you don't. And then finally, it's wrong to run and hide from something that you know God has called you to do. Not only is it wrong, but you can't really hide from God anyway. So trying to hide won't change the truth. It won't change what God has called you to do. It won't change what God expects from you. When the fish spits Jonah back up on land, God gives him the exact same call once again. If you try to run from what God wants you to do, it will just rob you of peace and joy and fellowship and blessing. Charles Spurgeon said one time, a man may hide God from himself, but not himself from God. Playing hide and seek with God is unfair. He's got advantages that you don't have. You can't run from him. If you need to be saved, do not hide from that. Repent and trust Jesus Christ to save you. If you're saved and you've never been scripturally immersed, don't run from that. If you need to join this church, don't hide from that. If you know that you're not serving God as you should and you need to be more faithful, don't hide from that. If the Lord's calling you to preach, don't run and hide from that. Running from God is a dangerous thing. He might just chase you down. Just like he did with Jonah. Instead of running from God, let's run to God and enjoy his mercy and his grace, his love, and serve him as we should and enjoy the peace and the fellowship and the blessing that comes along with trusting him and obeying him. Would you stand? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, as we bow, we thank you for the time that we've been able to gather together. We thank you for the fellowship that we've had around your word. And we pray that we will take these, this story from the life of Jonah and from these sailors and, and apply it to our own lives, Lord. We know that you are completely sovereign, God. And help us to trust you and follow you in everything that we do. Lord, if there's someone here today who's lost, we pray for their salvation before it's too late. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We pray you're encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.